this is the show. This is the part where I would welcome you to Technicolor Jesus, except it's no longer Technicolor Jesus. I am now welcoming you to Sunday morning matinee. The new title, same two guys, same nerds. We used to be a different show, but now we have a new name. That's really the whole headline here. It's a great name. Strong name. All right. Matt. So Sunday morning matinee, we are still here to talk movies and pop culture for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. I am still Matt, and I am still the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm still Adam, and I'm still a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And today, Adam, we are, to break in this new name, we are crash landing in a mid-90s Southern California blockbuster. <laughs> The only yeah. thing that would have made that scene more realistic was seeing you there in the background leafing through the documentaries. <laughs> hey, you uh, you guys got any uh, Grey Gardens? Uh, <laughs> you got Thin Blue Line back here? Anybody? No? You don't do it? You don't have these? These are classics, you know. Oh, that's that's what my conversations at Blockbuster went like in the, in the mid-90s. No, I, I saw you there in the background. I felt your spirit <laughs> strong in that scene. Any, any Males Brothers? You guys yeah. got, got any salesmen back there? No? Okay. Uh, but today we are checking in instead with uh, not quite the documentary section. We are in the latest installment of the Marvel Juggernaut, this weekend's newly released and 1990s set Captain Marvel. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, Adam and I are going to figure out if this movie has anything to inspire us to think about life in the church and life in faith. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Captain Marvel for this upcoming Sunday, which will be the second week in Lent, year C, March 17th. In our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from something that we're watching or reading or following. So, Adam, new Marvel movie, Captain Marvel, played by Brie Larson played Carol Danvers, the first female superhero to lead an MCU movie, although the elusive Black Widow movie is allegedly in pre-production. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, supposedly. Uh, Captain Marvel is a longtime Marvel Comics hero who was getting introduced here just in time to join the gang for the next Avengers movie, which we will almost certainly cycle back to in a couple of months. Along with being the first MCU film with a female lead, this one also goes back in time, Carol Danvers begins this movie as part of an intergalactic Delta Force, though she's got a big case of amnesia, and she comes to learn that she used to be an Air Force test pilot on a backwater planet called Earth. Saying much more than that would be spoiler territory, except to say that setting this movie more than a decade before Iron Man lets us also meet Sam Jackson's Nick Fury and Clark Gregg's Phil Coulson at a much earlier stage in their own stories, and with some newfangled fancy de-aging CGI to go alongside. We've also got Annette Bening, Jude Law, and Ben Mendelsohn underneath a bunch of makeup to turn him into the alien scrawl Talos. So, Adam, I guess I can skip right to the big question. Did it work for you? Yeah, so I really enjoyed this movie. I think it's well done. There's a steady hand that's directing it. And there's some ideas that they're, um, that they're playing with that are important and pretty novel. I think it's hard to make a standalone Marvel movie that doesn't feel a little derivative at this point. Sure. I, I think the, the, the ways in which we talk about superheroes and the ways in which we dis tell their stories has in recent years within the Marvel cinematic universe been pretty out there in part because they haven't had to do a lot of throat clearing and, it felt in some ways kind of quaint to go back to a movie where we have to tell the origin story of a human being, of, of a superhero, because we haven't done that in a really long time, at least 
not not in the recent memory. And instead, the sequels of a lot of these movies have been the places where they can work out some of the most the most stylistic and narratively interesting ideas. I think for this particular movie, there are a couple of things that did work for me. I think Brie Larson is amazing. I think she's really, really good. Um, and the fact that she, her or someone like her hasn't been in, introduced at their own movie earlier is probably a problem for Marvel. I think they should have done something earlier. I think we had a conversation, I remember, a while back, Matt, where you wanted Iron Man 2 to be Black Widow's movie, right? Something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think Iron Man 2 kind of is Black Widow's movie, but it, I wish they had leaned into it more than they did. Yeah, to be sure. Right. So in this movie, we actually have a female lead, and it allows them to do some uh, some interesting things narratively with with what that means. The thing that is going to stand out most thematically is this question about how uh, Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, or Veers, as she's known in uh, in the Scree, Crolls and Scree, Cree, Cree. Yeah. the Cree Get universe. Right yeah. Sorry. Sorry. We'll talk about some of the nuance of some intergalactic war that I, I truly don't care anything about. But she has to learn how to control her emotions in order to become the type of super soldier that is uh, going to eradicate this terrorist threat coming from the Krolls. And of course, at some point, we begin to realize that her true power lies in her emotions. And I, I like this idea quite a bit. I think it has a nice healthy dose of feminism in the background that is animating some of these ideas, especially with respect to how women are told that they're too emotional in order to do these important jobs. And the movie turns this idea on its head so that it's when Captain Marvel begins to uh, let her emotions out, that she fully becomes the superhero that she is destined to be. That said, this movie is also trying to play with a 90s disaffected Gen X identity. And it was hard for me to see how they could have both. Where, because at no point does Captain Marvel actually get all that emotional. This is, this is, I watched this movie with my wife and she came out and she goes, I, I like the idea, but. She never really cries. She never <laughs> gets that angry. She never. There's never a moment where you're like, "Wow, she's really emotional." And and I think in part that's because they're trying to play into this sort of '90s idea of of what identity was like in the '90s. So I have two questions for you, which is also, did it work for you? But also, does does setting this movie in the '90s make a difference? <sighs> It, it did work for me. I think you're right to point out that it's really hard for Marvel to be creative and innovative within the the kind of subgenre they have now going of the, the standalone superhero introduction movie, which may or may not be an origin story. I mean, we've had Spider-Man Homecoming and Black Panther neither of which are kind of strictly speaking origin stories. Both of those heroes have some version of their powers before the movie begins, and we don't get the, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get... What the heck is happening to me sequences that you normally associate with an origin story. So you'd have to go all the way back, I suppose, to Doctor Strange to get that 
that kind of genre hook. Yeah, Ant-Man, maybe? So, so I don't think it's been too long since we've seen films that had to carve out the same kind of how do we introduce this character space in, in, in the MCU that, uh, that, that Captain Marvel has to do. And it's really hard to do that in new and interesting and innovative ways. And I, I, I'm not actually sure they tried very hard here to make it new and interesting and innovative. But I, I thought they right. executed beats very, very well. So I thought that I was watching a very well-executed genre film. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this idea of the MCU as its own developing genre, uh, and and within that, like, okay, I I went and I watched a well executed genre film, and it's not going to be The Searchers, but it is going to be a very, very well done afternoon western where I know the beats and I'm participating in the expectation of that, and fine. Yeah, uh, it's not genre changing, but it it does genre well. Yeah. The the 90s piece of it, I mean, I, I guess to some extent that is one of the, the things that where they're trying to innovate. They've done time period before with Captain America, the first Avenger and World War II. Uh, I thought this worked better for me than that one, partially because the kind of sepia tone World War II thing is a little overplayed for me in other places. And so that movie has never really grabbed me. Uh, I enjoyed the '90s throwback. It, it, it. I enjoyed watching them hook into '90s tropes around action adventure movies. That, uh, so I enjoyed them playing with Terminator Two. I enjoyed them playing with Independence Day. Though they they missed a joke that they should have made. But, I mean, <laughs> there was a really there was a very obvious Will Smith quote, quotable welcome to earth moment that they should have just gone for. But uh, I, and I was a little frustrated that they let it sit on the cutting room floor. Um, but I, I thought it it let them um, play in the, the waters that this movie comes from in some ways. It lets them play with uh, some of the, some of the tropes that are working behind it. And I, I the 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 kind of Gen X disaffection. Okay, she goes around with a nine inch nails T shirt on. It didn't. It didn't. I, I didn't make the connection between that and kind of her emotional expressivism that you're trying to make. I think that's a really interesting point. And is it is it somehow dampening? Is her kind of living in this grunge era of the, the cultural water dampening the movie's ability to do? to let her be emotional in the way that the text seems to want her to be, or to say that she should have the power to be. Yeah. And that's, that's the question that I think remains unanswered in the movie because we're also dealing with someone who doesn't have memory. And so this is a, a question in the movie that I quite enjoy is the way that memory works in this movie. So if, if there is something that this movie is trying to offer the genre, it, it, it has a jigsaw puzzle type of uh, storytelling that's going on where it is not immediately linear in, in its storytelling about what happens and when it happens. And so you, you meet Carol Danvers in media res already as a Cree, according to her understanding, though you seem to understand that she has this life long before because you're, you're getting all of these flashbacks and, and little memory snippets that are, that are flashing through her brain. And I think that I really like because it, it allowed the storytellers to begin to, 
to use this this character to talk about memory and how how gathering these small fragments of past memory gives her a sense of herself and and of course we begin to understand that she is someone who has uh, who has failed regularly. She's in as a child. She's in a terrible uh, go kart accident, and then as a soldier, she's she can't make a, a a jump from rope to rope or something like that. And we see her fall and fall and fall. And uh, what I liked about this particular decision is that it. It seems to suggest that memories are, are are fragments, but they don't tell the whole story. That the link of our memory to the past is something that we need, but we also need someone to help us understand how those links organize themselves. Um, and that memory doesn't really work without some sense of coherence. And there's this, what I thought was a, quite emotional and beautiful moment of the movie where Carol's best friend relates back to her who she is. And, and that moment allows her to then reorganize the memories in a, in a way that gives her a coherence by which she can retrieve an identity. Now that's a, I think that's a pretty interesting idea for a superhero movie to begin to, to play with. And I think theologically it has a lot of resonance with me as we think about, okay, so in what ways are past narratives um, and past things happening um, in our lives actually reoriented and reorganized by either our communities, um, our worshiping communities, or by this other narrative or, or God's um, sense of who we are? Yeah, let's dig into this. I think this is a really interesting idea. Did you have a sense that at some point in the movie, maybe at that, you know, that that kind of getting up montage towards the end, that all of Carol Danvers' memories came flooding back to her? Because this is the trope that I normally expect in an amnesia plot line, is that at some point you get hit on the head again or someone splashes water on your face, or whatever it is that is the magic cure for your amnesia, and it all restores. But I, never, I did not get a sense that that ever happened here. What, is, what does Carol Danvers know about herself at the end of this movie? That's a really good question. I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure either. Yeah. In part because I have, I have real questions about why she doesn't come back. If, if all of the memories flooded back, and she realized... Oh, this is my home. Right? This is these are my people. These are the people for whom I am most tied. Whether it's her her friend Maria or Maria's daughter, like those are, you know, in the words of Lost, those are my constant. But then she leaves and and seems not to come back to earth for 25 years. Um, because she feels a need to sow peace within this other intergalactic sphere, of, which is also part of her identity. So I, I, I think the the movie leaves it ambiguous. I I think there is it's an important point that the movie is trying to make, which is that all of those past memories are necessary for her to become Captain Marvel. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's interesting and a, and a challenge for the viewer because 
we constantly, at least for the first two thirds of this movie, know so much more about who she is than she does. Mm. And that is a, it's kind of a frustratingly boring place to be in as a viewer. And I say that as someone who really liked this movie, but there's a little bit of like, come on, piece it together that happens with that level of dramatic irony where I'm not three minutes ahead of the character. I'm 20 minutes ahead of the character um, by design. Uh, And it takes away a little bit of the suspense of it, since you kind of know where the arc has to go in, in, in real specific ways about who she, what, what she needs to figure out. She needs to figure out stuff that you've known since you watched the trailer for the movie. I think about this a little bit as a pastor in a church going into a season of Lent where I'm constantly wondering how much suspense to try to create, create into the Christian year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Because in some ways, the whole point of this thing is that we know where it's going. I mean, I, I preached about this a little bit yesterday, that there is something inevitable about Lent. We, we know that Good Friday is coming and that Easter Sunday is coming. And to pretend otherwise would be both totally impractical, since we've been doing this thing for 2,000 years and it's on everybody's calendar. And also, we have Jesus in the Gospels telling the disciples exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go to Jerusalem. Right. And on the other hand, to lose the suspense of it is to somehow lose the the kind of dramatic value and weight and heft of what's going on. It makes you watch it kind of through this almost disaffected lens. And I, and yeah, I wonder... Yeah, the consequences is, right. is undermined. Yeah. Right. So, like, how do you how do you tell a story that is critical and weighty and and meaningful and yet everybody is two hours ahead of the main characters i don't yeah i don't have an answer to that question other than trying to find different angles to watch the action and different proxies and that's where i thought the the talos character is kind of interesting is that uh we're getting a we're getting a, a new character to watch this. I think Sam Jackson is actually a little bit underutilized in this movie. Uh, there's nothing new that I learned about Nick Fury that really? I, di- I didn't already know. Um, He's so much more like jovial affable. and and yeah. and kind of curious about the world. And there's like a, a kindle of hope in there somewhere that is totally gone by time we get to beaten up and disaffected Nick Fury. I, I thought it was an, a, a well-valanced performance. I liked it. Yeah, I, I didn't have a problem with it. I, I think we didn't get the, the Nick Fury backstory. We don't, we still don't, he's still an enigma as, as what his origin story is in, okay. in many ways. Um, that, that said, I think that there are a couple of characters who are, who are watching this, who are kind of new of uh, this, this, turn that happens within the the movie where you think the good guys are the bad guys and the bad guys become the good guys uh is a is an old one that said i thought the talos character had some new 
identity or persona to offer. Yeah. It's quite, quite funny at yeah. times and kind of clownish in his own way. Um, and I thought that seeing this story through his eyes provided a little bit more of the consequence, right? Like, um, I, I, have you watched the game of Thrones, uh, trailer once? Yeah. Not obsessively. Uh, there's an interesting moment where there's someone there's like the uh, over the shoulder shot of a boy watching an army walk through a town. And I keep coming. I keep thinking about that shot a lot because there there seems to be this. This reminder. That these these decisions that are being made by powerful people. Affect people in no positions of power and and this anonymous back of the head of a small child kind of jerks me into a larger universe about what consequence looks like mm-hmm. and i don't know if if we can if we can fully retrieve the suspense of something like the passion narrative or something like lent except to say that by showing the ways in which that narrative affects people who we haven't ever attended to, that that does actually hold some consequence. Yeah. And I thought the, I thought this scroll, um, the, the plot and the turn here, and we're now into spoiler territory a bit, but just to, to, to level with it, that, you know, the, the scrolls are the, the, the enemies in the order at the beginning of this story, it's the, the, Kree are looking for this terrorist cell of, of rogue scrolls. Scrolls are these these kind of green monstery aliens who can um, change shape, and so they can blend as humans and blend anywhere, uh, which leads to a particularly funny moment early on of Brie Larson punching an old lady on a subway that you may have seen in the trailers. Um, <laughs> and then the, the reveal halfway through is that the scrolls are, are really refugees, uh, and they are, have been scattered throughout the universe and, and have gone into hiding and that the Kree are kind of the, the, the high-minded Imperials who, are, who have been um, searching for them and, and basically detonating planets if they hear of, you know, even a pocket, even a couple of scrolls um, who, have, who have infiltrated anywhere, who are, who are trying to even settle anywhere. Uh, the... Um, Talos, Ben Mendelsohn's character, who is kind of the personification of the Skrulls in this movie, I thought was one of the strongest parts of the movie. His performance I is agree. remarkable. And, yeah, and it's it, really it, good. And it, he's both kind of uh, delightfully wicked at the beginning when he's supposed to be, and then just seamlessly turns into this just richly sympathetic character in the second half. Uh, and I, I, I thought that was a, a really beautiful beautiful question it brought to me all of these theological questions about uh about being a refugee because of course being a refugee is is not a a theological question it's part it's a deep part of of the the biblical story and the biblical witness and surely the kind of political importance of the biblical witness in 2019 i mean of course it's the superhero power of a refugee to change shape and blend in yeah that's really smart and 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 there there are a million sermons to be given 
particularly in thinking about Israel in exile or the early church separating from Roman culture about what what it is to be in hiding, what it is to be assimilating, um, what what is the theological value around trying to blend, uh, and what it, what does it mean to be in hiding? What does it mean to be in and not of a culture? Um, there's there's a lot of rich rich ground here. Um, I, I I think that there's to me that was the most strikingly interesting part of this movie. I'm not necessarily the original, but definitely one the thing that I'm going to be chewing on. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think about this, the Joseph narrative that we talked about the other day, right? So you have a, I mean, the last, uh, when we talked with Aisha, we talked about Joseph, but that story is I mean, so long. It's, you know, it's like at least 20 chapters. Right. And, um, and so much of it is it a, is about how does Joseph retain a Hebrew identity in a foreign court? Yeah. yeah. And and you see that in in Joseph, you see that in Daniel, you see that in, in any in, in the Babylonian exile. Like yeah. how do we how do we sing our songs in a foreign land? And and I think you're right to recognize that there is this question of yeah, we we can look like everybody else. Right. There should be a way for the 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 scrolls scroll to hide or scrolls mm-hmm. to hide forever, never be found because they can they can become the DNA of whatever species they're hiding at. Sure, but to do so is to also sacrifice a part of them that they're unwilling to sacrifice, and that's just a really powerful question to continue to to ask. So I I agree. I like that. So before we cycle to scripture, I, I want to zoom back out to like the the broader MCU genre question. As I said, I'm kind of interested in the MCU as its own emerging genre. Uh, and so I have a couple of questions for you. Of the of the, all the MCU movies that you've seen, which one do you think, if you were to kind of draw the cloud diagram of all those movies within the genre, which one do you think is the most, is, is that this at the very center? What is the most MCU movie of all the MCU movies? And what is the least? Which one is the most unlike the others? I, I think it's a really interesting question. And there's a part of me that wants to, to at least admit that this super emerging superhero genre, and it is a genre, I think you're right, also likes to combine and synthesize with other genres. And right. so you, you have superhero buddy pictures, you have superhero detective pictures, you have superhero Westerns that, that, that it is constantly borrowing the tropes and of, of other genres in order to sort of tell its stories. That said, if there is something that sort of sits at the center, as you, as you said, there are a couple that I would lift up and they're probably early because that's just sort of how it has to work. I think, um, I think Iron Man probably does this, um, best within MCU, um, or, uh, or winter soldier. Those are those are my two suggestions. I think Iron Man in particular, because it it gives you 
a linear way to tell about the transformation of a human being into a superhero and the motives behind that and ultimately the consequences to family, friends, loved ones, right? Important important theme in superhero movies all the time. So like what type of responsibility do we have and what is that and who does that imperil? Um and then Winter Soldier I think does another thing where it is a it is a movie about in in this case friendship, but I would say about relationship. Um about how do super people relate with each other and care about each other, love each other, even though they might be enemies. And I think those those two themes are among the most important for superhero films. And those two films zone in on the themes, tell the theme well, and do it in a way where stylistically they're not like reinventing the wheel. Where as much as I like, I love Thor Ragnarok. I think it's so rad. I think it's so rad. But it's it's not the the genre defining film. Yeah, and there's a part of there's something about genre. I mean, this is where the semantics and tactic stuff breaks down. There's something about it which is kind of I know it when I see it, right? There's so there's something about it that is just kind of gut. And and I think that is what I'm trying to unpack for myself is a sense that even as yes, Marvel has taken made made this habit of kind of aping other genres as part of the expansiveness of the MCU so that Black Panther is a number of things, including being a very good James Bond movie. Uh, you know, Ant-Man is a number of things, including being kind of a caper comedy. Uh, that even within that, there's something kind of, there's something ineffable about them that just feels like, oh, this is a, a Marvel movie. I expect these things. There's some, there's some, something about the dialogue, something about the cinematography. There's something that just kind of is at the center of it, and I can't, that I can't quite get to. So, uh, what do you want to nominate? What do you think should be at the center? Well, I, I mean, I, th- I think th- you know, certainly the original Iron Man, as you pointed out, although it's hard to figure out kind of whether that really is the center or whether it's just so definitional that it's hard to avoid. Um, I think the original Avengers as well has, Mm -hmm. has some elements of that. Um, The ones that are furthest away, I think also feel early. I think probably, and I haven't gone back to rewatch it for a while. I think probably the first Thor would feel furthest away from me, for me, just because um, I think the, um, the sequences that are trying to do galaxy building there um, feel so Kenneth Branagh-y and, and, and they hadn't quite figured out how to do that yet until they made Guardians and then they kind of figured it out. And so I think Guardians helps fix the right. galaxy building part of the MCU and it gets away from the kind of Shakespearean stuff, which I think now, if you went back to look, would just feel very much out of place. Support for Sunday Morning Matinee comes from Emory University's Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. Build critical skills for Christian ministry with a new two-year Master of Religious Leadership that they're offering. For this degree, you can choose from six areas of specialization, including youth ministry, worship and music, pastoral care, mission evangelism, and world Christianity— 
peace building and conflict transformation, and also Wesleyan leadership and heritage. You can find all these details at candler.emory.edu slash Sunday morning. Again, that's candler.emory.edu slash Sunday morning for some information on a new program that they're offering. We are also grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. Barbara Brown Taylor just uh, published an excerpt from her upcoming book called Holy Envy. Really interesting um, conversation in that piece about uh, what our relationship should be to other uh, religious traditions and faiths. It's really interesting. I think you should go and read it. And if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash Sunday morning matinee. So let's move on to preaching. Uh, this segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We are going to look at the lectionary passages from March 17th, the second Sunday in Lent. We've got Abraham's covenant with God. We've got Psalm 27, which is a song of confidence and distress. We've got Philippians 3 and citizenship in heaven, and we finally have Jesus' lament over Jerusalem in Luke. Adam, as you looked through these passages and thought about Captain Marvel, what sparked for you? So initially what sparked with me was in the lectionary itself, which is Paul's discussion about what it means to be a citizen in heaven and also God's uh, discussion with Abram about the, the stars in the sky. And the, as I was reading those two in tandem with each other, I started to also think about Captain Marvel's departure from Earth into this extraterrestrial world. And I was wondering where exactly has she been? And, um, and in the way that Abram is directed to look up at the stars and Paul talks about our citizenship in heaven, our citizenship in heaven, I was, I was just thinking about how there's value in looking to the extraterrestrial for some form of our identity or knowledge of the world in which we live, that, that in many ways we find our true selves in foreign places. And we talked a little bit about this with, with respect to the Kroll and the ways in which they are trying to figure out the levels of assimilation. But additionally, I think with Captain Marvel, I'm, I'm interested now the, the remaining question that I have from this movie is, is she an earthling? Does she still consider herself Cree? And what is she doing out in the world, out, out in the galaxy now? And her departure from, from Earth has left a, some void, some, some hole. And that hole um, requires people to now, like, reconstitute themselves around it. So for instance, by the end of the movie, <clears throat> Sam Jackson is putting out a new shield program an Avengers program so that he can gather a group of people together to save the, the, the world or the universe if need be. And I suspect that Maria, her friend is also trying to sort of rethink the identity with this whole. And and likewise, the early church was trying to rethink the whole, their identity in light of the whole of Christ not being there. And so I'm, I'm circling around this ideas of the stars and, and what's out there and how that thing that is out there is also a reflection of what is not here, what is not present in our lives. 
and how what is not present, that whole, is also a new opportunity to rethink who we are. So, I, you know, I'm beginning to sort of move around there. I think that there's also really interesting vacillations in the psalm. It's a it, Psalm 27 is a, a song that reaches really high highs and really low lows all in the same poem. And I like that. I, I like those psalms. I think they sort of have a majesty that, that speaks to me. And the praise and lament, the confidence and the fear, the, the back and forth. Um, and this reminds me of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, too, is that I think they've done a good job of trying to figure out where evil and good and bad and um, and and everything in between is on a continuum. And so that those people who you think are villains can also be heroes and the heroes can turn villain. And they and even someone like the big bad in um, the, the most recent Avengers and the upcoming Avengers of uh, Avengers of Thanos like I thought Josh Brolin played him really well is not being particularly evil, but um, in the, in the common ways in which we understand that, but determined in his own strange way in that, that, that is going to eliminate everyone. But um, there's, there's levels of humanity still present there or levels of, of, of something that you can sort of grasp on that doesn't, that doesn't fit in a totally Manichaean black and white type of world. So those are the types of things that I'm thinking about right now. What about you? Yeah, I'm interested in this, um, this question of the stars and the heavens too, particularly in the Genesis reading where God promises Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And there's this, you kind of imagine this moment of, of looking up and seeing the, the, the galaxy strewn across the sky. Uh, and I, I'm connecting that with part of what I've already said here about the, um, the scrolls as refugees and this moment at the end of the film where, um, uh, Talos begins to say that, you know, it's not just him and his family, that there are pockets of scrolls kind of all over the universe that they've been living and hiding in all of these different little places. Uh, and, and that moment kind of helps me reshape a little bit what this, this covenant promise to Abraham conveys. Because, of course, it is true that Abraham's descendants are as numerous as the stars. It is also true for Jews reading this in Babylon or in Egypt, or particularly even in kind of um, in later diasporic communities, that you can be numerous and also scattered to the far ends of the earth. Um, that there's a long distance between the, each of those stars to the one next to it. And so that text becomes more soulful to me and it has mm. uh some lament built into it uh that is not just about quantity but all of a sudden about the vast expanse of space between these family members uh, and so that is kind of reframing that text a little bit for me in some in some helpful yeah. ways that's really interesting i mean in in addition to that the in order to gather the diaspora 
the need for transportation becomes paramount, which is an interesting part of this movie, which is the right. sort of cent- center of this movie. Right. And and the the question is, is how how do we go and get each other? Yeah. And um, and it's just it seems an overwhelming problem. And I, I, I think that this, as you said, is, is in maybe in the back of the mind of the, the writers of, of scripture. Um, I think theologically it has a lot of, uh, possibility moreover within the terms of this movie, it means that what the, quote villains are looking for is not a weapon it's a boat it's a plane it's something that will allow them to travel to make the community whole again Mm -hmm. and that's that's powerful um to think about how many times the powerful have have seen the weak search for new technology and assume they were searching for weapons mm-hmm. when really they were searching for transportation. So Matt, let's move to our last segment here. This is called postludes and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. What's your postlude for the week? Well, I, I am known on this show already as something of a, of a historic Star Trek fan. And I just want to update you on some Star Trek news <laughs> that has happened. Um, and it's not so much news about the Star Trek franchise, although um, season two of Discovery is on CBS now and it's pretty good. I'm, I think they've figured out some things. I'm enjoying it a lot more than I was season one. Um, more that actually in the, the news of the world, Star Trek has come up a couple of times this week and Slate pulled these together, but I want to give the original links too. Um, there was a Daily Mail interview with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's mother in which she talked about her daughter watching Star Trek Voyager and the meaningfulness of Catherine Janeway, the first female mm. Star Trek captain for um, Ocasio-Cortez. There's also a profile in the New York Times this week of Stacey Abrams, the former um, Georgia gubernatorial candidate and erstwhile presidential aspiration holder, perhaps, um, which is entirely about her devotion to Star Trek. She has got like an encyclopedic catalog of Star Trek happening in her brain at all times, uh, and she uses it for all sorts of different cultural and political observations. Um, and I, I really enjoyed these for, for really for this reason that I... Um, we didn't talk at all in talking about Captain Marvel about the kind of uh, the, the kind of boycott campaign that was going on before this movie came out. Uh, that a bunch of the kind of men's rights dopes who were mad about Last Jedi uh, are mad about representation here and had tried to orchestrate like tanking the reviews on Metacritic um, and all sorts of things like that. The movie made a bajillion dollars this weekend, so they yeah, seem they seem to have lost. Um, but, but my problem is that unfortunately I tend to enjoy, have enjoyed a lot of the same cultural texts in my childhood as a lot of the dopes that orchestrate those campaigns. Like I enjoyed star Wars. I enjoyed star Trek debates about the last Jedi and make me want to watch star Wars less just because I don't want to have to be in the water with the folks who have, who, who have turned to that kind of venom. Um, on the other hand, the news from this week about Star Trek was was great because it was 
Ocasio-Cortez and Abrams reminded me, reminded me why I really love these texts, why, for all of its faults, I think Star Trek does good in television and it helps television ask interesting, curious questions about who we are and it helps form interesting people, um, whether you agree with their opinions all the way down or not. It just helped me claim something about myself that has been important historically and say, you can... You can enjoy these kind of super dorky texts without ending up like those jerks. And so that's what has been meaningful to me this week, Adam. Yeah, it's so important, especially for those of us who who feel like our identities have, have really been formed by popular media and, um, and to try and seed all of the opinions to those who shout the loudest about how important it is to them. And therefore they're the ones who, um, who get to preserve it or protect it. Um, it's nice to remember that there are lots of other people who have also been formed by this stuff and it's, and they get to have opinions about it too. What about you? So, uh, so you, you want to know my favorite scene in any of the Star Trek movies are? I sure. You tell me it's when William Shatner is, Mountain climbing. Oh, yeah. Remember, this is like Star Trek five, I think. O- opening of Star like Trek five. He's up the, yeah. up, up the wall at all cap. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so as often happens within the, <coughs> the weird movie worlds in which we live, sometimes two movies ostensibly about similar things come out at the same time. So free solo recently won the Academy award for best documentary film of the last year. There is also a second documentary film about El cap that is, totally worth watching and it's called the dawn wall um it's really in some ways about tommy caldwell who is one of the upper upper echelons maybe the best um rock climber in the world uh he is a a really interesting figure who came to fame uh, relatively young as this sort of climbing phenom and uh, went through all sorts of different terrible tragedies he was kidnapped by rebels in kyrgyzstan for six days and um and he loses a finger at some point and still is one of the best rock climbers in the world and it's really a movie about his obsession to climb a portion of el capitan in yosemite um called the dawn wall which is basically a sheer set of granite it's 3000 feet high and it is damn near impossible to climb. And the movie is about how he and his partner, um, Kevin Jorgensen basically invent a route up this particular part of the wall. And the photography is incredible. And the story is really well told. What I really loved about it is that the, the line between obsession and therapy and just a deep desire to be resilient in this world is, um, is constantly being tested. And, uh, and I commend it to you if you're looking for something that's inspiring on the one hand, beautiful on the other, but also begins to ask questions about how do we deal with our limits and how do we begin to, um, redeem our obsessions as something more so it's it's really well done i was i was really into it yeah i'm I'm gonna look forward to that thank you there's also um since we're in the genre um go on youtube and find the 
some journalistic organization, I forget which one, sits Alex Handel down, the guy from Free Solo, to ask to have him narrate for them um, different rock climbing scenes from movies. <laughs> really? So yeah. um, it's worth watching him go and give his commentary on William Shatner climbing the wall in Star Trek V so that there's 10 minutes of your life I've now given to you. Oh, I can't wait. They, they show uh, Spock's rocket boots. <laughs> my other favorite part of that. I don't remember whether they get that far in the scene. <laughs> he, he like, it's incredible. Okay. All right. Well, that wraps it up. Let's, uh, if you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and discuss how we got all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can come to Twitter or to our show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Cat Jokes. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam.